0: It's Jared. So, as the wildfires throughout California and the West Coast start to die down a little bit, some of the conversations surrounding the environmental causes of these fires are really picking up. And primarily, I'm talking about climate change here, right? Uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has put out a whole bunch of tweets and promises to combat climate change as the impacts of these fires were really tangible for a lot of people, right? Climate change is kind of this existential issue. It's something that is very out there. It seems very hard to kind of grasp and put into words what the problem will look like, right? We can always hear, oh, it's going to become unlivable. It's going to be, temperatures are going to rise. Uh, ice caps are going to melt and so on. But you don't really believe that to, unless it starts happening. And a lot of people see the recent wildfires as kind of this indicator that climate change is happening. Um, And part of that conversation kind of centers around, well, what are the causes of climate change? And yes, the textbook answer is emissions of greenhouse gases, but again, more tangibly, what does it look like? What are these causes of climate change that are happening in the day to day world? And if you've been paying attention to the news for the past four to eight years, there's probably a word that you've heard come up in this conversation, and that's fracking. Uh, and that sounds, again, kind of like an odd term. Um, but fracking is, for a lot of people, at the core of the emissions of gases and environmental problems when it comes to oil drilling and natural gas extraction. Um, And I know these are a lot of big words and they sound somewhat technical if you're not in the oil industry, Um, but don't worry, we'll break that all down today. Um, But what I learned is that fracking is one of those unique issues that has problems both locally and throughout the globe. And for good reason, it's being talked about. But the solutions as to how to mitigate some of the problems from fracking really seem to be uh, a gray area for politicians. So, for this week, I sit down with Daniel Remy, who is the Senior Research Associate at Resources for the Future and a lecturer at the University of Michigan Ford School of Public Policy. And he wrote an amazing book called The Fracking Debate. Uh, so today, we're just going to break down everything that has to do with fracking, its causes, and where do we go from here. So, if you care about the environment or even just how the gas that heats your stove might get there in the first place. Stay tuned. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. I think fracking is a topic that makes a lot of news, especially a few years ago, but even now as the election cycle is kicking up. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. But before we hop into that, if you could provide a little bit of an introduction on who you are and how you got into fracking.
1: Sure. So my name is Daniel Ramey. I am a senior research associate at Resources for the Future, which is a environmental and natural resources research organization based in Washington, D.C., RFF has been around for over 65 years, and we're pretty well known in DC as being an organization that works on environmental topics and natural resource topics like climate change and forests and fisheries and oil and gas. And I I like to think that we are Considered to be one of the most expert organizations and also nonpartisan and non advocacy, which is really important. Our goal is to inform policymakers so that they can make better decisions rather than telling them what we think they should do or shouldn't do. So that's a little bit about me and RFF. I got interested in fracking basically on a fluke. In 2011, I think it was, I was in graduate school at Duke University. I had an internship working with the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources. It's not called that anymore, but that's what it was called at the time. And at the time, there was a lot of interest in North Carolina about potentially developing shale gas in North Carolina. So the state legislator asked the department where I was interning to do a study assessing the feasibility and potential risks of shale gas development in the state. And I uh, basically raised my hand and volunteered to to work on that report. And for some reason that I am eternally grateful for and still don't quite understand, (laughs) they let me do it. Um, So I got interested in shale gas that way and have basically been working on it ever since.
0: Awesome. I think that's a unique thing. And a lot of times opportunities and passions sprout out of odd, the stars aligning in that case. And I think that's really awesome that that kind of propelled you uh, into a whole different career path, or at least a specific subset of a career path you're already interested in. So without any further ado, what is fracking? And I know you just mentioned shale gas, so if you could define that as well, if, if that's the same thing as fracking, maybe a little different, and how is it different than normal methods of oil extraction or other resource extraction?
1: Yeah, great question. So there is a difference between fracking and shale gas. Fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing. And it's a process rather than a product. So natural gas is a product, right, that you consume on your stove or in your boiler in your basement. Oil is a product that you might consume as gasoline in your car. And those products are produced by drilling wells into the surface of the earth and extracting oil and natural gas. Once a well has been drilled into a rock formation that has an economically viable quantity of oil or gas within it, companies literally since the beginning of the industry in 1859, companies have been doing various things to try to, quote, stimulate production from those wells. So oftentimes it's not enough just to drill a hole into the ground and expect a lot of oil and gas to come up. You have to drill that hole and then do a couple additional steps to try to increase your production. And in the 1860s, that meant lowering essentially sticks of dynamite into you know 100, 200 foot deep holes and detonating them and crossing your fingers and hoping that that was going to lead to the (laughs) increased production of oil, uh, in this case in Western Pennsylvania where the industry really began. Now over time, Over, you know, literally 150 years, companies have been experimenting all sorts of different ways to try to increase production from the wells that they have drilled. One of those ways is hydraulic fracturing, which is essentially taking a liquid, which is usually water-based, but it also includes a substantial amount of sand and also chemicals that have been quite controversial, and I'm happy to talk about that. So you, you take that mixture and you pump it down into your oil or gas well at very high pressure that very high pressure creates very small cracks in the rock formations. Those cracks are called fractures, hence the name hydraulic fracturing. Mm. And the, the types of rocks that you are applying those fractures to, those are often shale rocks. And so if you have gas coming out of a shale rock using hydraulic fracturing, then you have shale gas produced with fracking. And basically the same technique can be applied to produce oil in the United States. So that's a really simple definition of what fracking is and and basically how it works.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction to make is that fracking is the process and shell gas or oil is is the product there. It's interesting that uh, it's kind of evolved so quickly in terms of how to get the natural resources out right i mean fracking is clearly controversial and we'll get into why that is the case down the road but if the alternative was throwing dynamite down a oil filled per se uh, well and detonating it the risk that the whole mine could just collapse i feel like is pretty bad so fracking might be in that case a slight upgrade from crossing your fingers and hoping that the whole uh, gaggle of people don't die due to dynamite
1: yeah i mean You know, they're they're actually, so I wrote a book about fracking. It's called The Fracking Debate. And one of the stories I tell in it is the, if you actually go back and look at newspapers from Western Pennsylvania in the 1860s, you'll see all sorts of deaths associated basically with the poor handling of nitroglycerin-based explosives that were, you know, supposed to be lowered into an oil well, but in many cases they exploded before they made it down there. So the risk of, you know, a well collapsing, I think that, That wasn't a really big problem, but the risks of handling those combustible materials at the surface was really very dangerous. So I I don't know if if I would call fracking an upgrade or what, but it certainly doesn't have those types of surface level risks that using TNT would.
0: Yeah. I think that's a a good way to put it. So kind of hopping then into the controversial element of fracking, right? On the surface, a lot of people would say, well, this just seems like kind of a normal ways and means of getting a lot of the natural resources that we rely on as a society, whether that be oil, gas, or whatnot. But as you mentioned, the controversial element of fracking is the long-term environmental concerns, both at the site and for water contamination across the local communities that it happens in. I know the debate kind of sprouted out of Alaska, where a lot of Inuit indigenous communities were being adversely affected by oil drilling in the region. And that's kind of how the, the environmental debate sprung out of that. So if you could explain for us, what is the exact science behind that environmental debate? And how do all these larger environmental harms come out of that?
1: Yeah. So that's a really big question. Yes. I'll try my best to kind of focus on, on one or two parts of it so that I can actually answer it. Maybe a couple things to just note first is that when we talk about the places in the country where there's a lot of hydraulic fracturing or fracking going on, the places that you really see it the most over the last five or 10 years have been different parts of Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, to a lesser extent, Colorado, in Wyoming. There's actually very little hydraulic fracturing that happens in Alaska, Mm. but we can talk about that more later if you'd like. So when it comes to the environmental risks of fracking, they are real and they have the potential to be substantial. One of the big differences between today's fracking and what you might've seen, let's say in the 1860s or the 1950s or even the 1970s, is that the volumes of water Mm -hmm. And other materials that are pumped down into the well are orders of magnitude higher, right? Tens or hundreds of times higher than we might have seen in the past. And so it's not uncommon to see a well that is drilled, let's say, a a mile underground and then two, three, or four miles horizontally. So to create lots of fractures in a well that long, you might need millions or even tens of millions of gallons of water to economically produce oil or gas out of that rock formation. And so when you pump all that water down, it doesn't actually just stay there. A lot of it comes back. And when it comes back to the surface, much of that water has high levels of salts. There are some, in some cases, there can be low levels of radioactivity that come up with the water because there are radioactive elements deep in the earth. And then there's also basically ancient seawater that is already mm. down there with the oil and gas. And so that ancient seawater can also come up to the surface. In fact, it does in large quantities. And if you don't handle that water appropriately at the surface, let's say if you spill it, or if it leaks out of a pond where it's being stored, or if a truck that's carrying it crashes, that can have real and substantial negative impacts on local environments and on water quality. And we've seen a number of cases where spills of what are called either produced water or flowback water, basically those are the two different types of water that I just described, mm-hmm. where those spill at the surface and damage local water quality. There's one other way that any type of oil and gas drilling can negatively affect people's water, whether or not it involves hydraulic fracturing. And that is simply by problems in the way that the well itself is constructed. And this gets a little technical, so I'm not gonna try to explain all of it, but in really simple terms, if you have cracks in the steel or cement or other imperfections in the steel or cement that you use to actually create the well, then it can allow natural gas, which is methane, or other potential compounds to basically get into people's drinking water near the surface. And if that happens, that's another way that oil and gas drilling again, regardless of whether or not it uses fracking, that's another way that the oil and gas development can negatively affect people's water. And we've seen hundreds of cases in Pennsylvania alone, where oil and gas drilling has caused these negative effects to people's water supply. So those are two of the the big concerns related to water. There are plenty of others too, but I'll stop there and see if you want to talk about any others.
0: Sure. I would just say um following up, what is like the rough percentage of spills? Or in other words, is it common practice that water, that either flowback water or ancient seawater, any of the things you've just described, make it into local water supply of communities? Or is that a rarity of fracking? Like what is the probability of that happening, in other words?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I had a precise number to give you. Unfortunately, I don't. There are, you know, state governments do track spills of these types of water. So in North Dakota, for example, they have a pretty good database of all of the spills that have happened at the surface, but actually some states don't really track that data. So we actually don't really know mm. uh, exactly what the numbers are. I would say in general that it's, it's not common. It's not something that happens all the time out there in, in the oil and gas world. But when it does happen, let's say it might happen, you know, hundreds of times in a given state over a couple of years, the impacts that it can cause really varies on the size of the spill. So if you spill, let's say 10 gallons of produced water, I don't think there's going to be any kind of major environmental damage from that. But if you spill hundred thousand gallons, that's a very different story. So we really have to look at the scale of the spills and also where the spills happen. If a spill happens out in the middle of a desert uh, where no one's relying on drinking water, that's not a good thing, but it certainly has less risk to the community and to the, uh, the health of the community than if it's spilled, let's say, in someone's, on someone's farm or into a stream where people rely on that stream for water.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense, right? It's both the scale and the frequency of it that can cause harm. If there's one case study, if you have, that tracks this all the way through on the environmental side from maybe the well is constructed bad, which leads to this, which leads to that, just to kind of get an understanding of, of how it can work.
1: Sure. So there's a pretty famous story in, in the world of uh, shale gas related to a town or a township in Pennsylvania called Dimock Township, which is in Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. I've been there a few times and, and spoken with people who live there and, and many other researchers and and activists have too. There's a road in Dimick Township called Carter Road. There's a couple dozen homes on that road. And I wanna say in two th- around 2007, 2008, a company was drilling and fracking several wells near that road and imperfections in the construction of the well, right? Not the fracking process itself, but problems with the steel and cement of the well basically caused methane to get into people's water supplies. And again, this affected a couple dozen homeowners. One of the homeowners, methane accumulated in a small shed behind their house and the shed actually exploded. Oh Um, my God. No one was harmed, thankfully, but it sort of demonstrated the very real risk uh, that this issue could raise. The water quality for many people on that road was negatively affected. There was all sorts of court wrangling between the State Department of Environment and the company. Eventually what happened was that the company bought out most of the homeowners along that road because people living on that road basically, you know, their water was not usable. And if you have a home where the water is not usable, you're not going to be able to sell that home and move somewhere else. No one's Mm going to buy that property. And so the company bought out the people who many of the people who lived along that road, I think at roughly two times the estimated property value of their homes, uh, and they left. And that's an extreme case. That's, you know, that's the only case that I'm aware of where you actually have dozens of homeowners having to move because of shale gas development. But it does show you the sort of extreme end of what can happen when things go wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously is a pretty extreme case in horribly, uh, kind of for those few homeowners, what a ride that would be. To me, it was like even something as small as just a little imperfection in the well can cause all these kind of ripple effects. So there is definitely like a magnifying effect to this. So shifting gears a little bit here, the story we just heard was from Pennsylvania. And as the election's coming up, Pennsylvania is continually looked at as one of those swing states that could be really important for both candidates, obviously. And as you mentioned, fracking and natural resource extraction is a really big part of Western Pennsylvania's economy. And for a lot of people, especially union workers who work in that, that's a very big voting issue for them. So given stories like what we just heard, but also comparing that to the economic implications of fracking in a state like Pennsylvania, particularly Western Pennsylvania, how do you think For this election cycle, the various proposals that either candidate is making, obviously Trump being more friendly to fracking development, where Biden has not said he's actually going to ban fracking, but at least regulate it more than Trump is. How do you think a lot of people within the natural gas world are reacting to that?
1: Yeah, it's a really big question right now. And obviously it's a hot button one. The stances of the two presidential candidates on energy and climate are very, very different, but one way in which they don't differ all that much is their approach to natural gas. So in Pennsylvania, where hydraulic fracturing happens mostly to produce natural gas, you know, we've been talking about environmental risks mostly for the last few minutes, but there are very substantial economic benefits that come with the growth of this industry. There are, as you say, parts of southwestern Pennsylvania, parts of northeastern Pennsylvania, and several other places in between that have seen substantial boosts in local employment, local income, local tax revenue, and other benefits from shale gas development. So even though there are real risks to developing oil and gas, and the people who live in these communities understand those risks pretty well, what you tend to find is that people who live in and around oil and gas producing regions are usually more supportive of the industry than those who might live further away, particularly those who live in left-leaning places like big cities. There have been a number of studies, some of which I've done, that sort of demonstrate this. And so what it tells you is that the individuals who live in oil and gas producing regions, they have an understanding of the risks, they have an understanding of the benefits, and they tend to see the benefits as outweighing the risks. Mm. And so in the context of the upcoming election what that tells you is that you know any candidate that is seen to be against natural gas development or oil development is likely to have a hard time picking up votes in places where that industry is central and in the case of vice president biden he has stated clearly that he does not intend to ban fracking at a national level but he has signaled that he would increase regulation on methane emissions, on volatile organic compound emissions, and also he would limit new leasing, oil and gas leasing, on federally owned lands. That wouldn't have a big effect on Pennsylvania, but it could send a signal to voters in the state that they might be worried about future moves that a Biden, a hypothetical Biden administration would take. Of course, when you look at President Trump, he's been very pro-oil, gas, and coal throughout his entire term, and he sends that signal very strongly to voters. And so those are the complexities that voters are going to be wrestling with.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mention that the people who are probably going to be most adversely affected by any environmental problem that might sprout out of fracking are the people who really are kind of the most adamant supporters. And as you said, primarily for the economic impact that it brings to the communities, which to me is somewhat interesting then as someone who comes from a city like Los Angeles where natural gas extraction is not that big, but everyone would be very quick to kind of condemn it in the sense that right, we're not really directly affected by it. None of the environmental problems you've detailed kind of contribute to larger climate as a whole. And there might be some, but it seems like most of them are more localized in the sense that a smaller local water supply is affected. So I think it's somewhat interesting that the people who would really be bearing the burden are also the people who see the benefits in in the greatest extent.
1: I mean, yeah. if I could just, you know, we haven't really talked about climate change. Mm-hmm. And and I I do want to say, I mean, if you want to talk about it in detail, I'm happy to, but the sort of climate effects of the increased oil and gas production that's happened in the U.S. are very substantial. The U.S. power sector has seen carbon dioxide emissions decline dramatically, and that's mostly because cheap natural gas has displaced coal over the last 15 years or so. But as we look forward and we look towards the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions dramatically over the next several decades, It becomes increasingly problematic to keep producing lots and lots of oil and natural gas, whether that's here in the United States or internationally. And so, from a climate perspective, you know the impacts of shale gas and shale oil development are are actually pretty complicated and and nuanced.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine there there is there's some climate impact. I found it that it's interesting that that's a step up from coal. I mean, it's interesting and not in the sense that intuitively coal. Has kind of always been viewed in mining as, as a clear contributor to climate change. And if fracking might be more efficient in that front, that's great. But as you clearly mentioned, a lot of the projections that are needed to reverse a lot of the effects of climate change, or at least mitigate them, would probably surpass the, the fracking need. If there's anything else you wanted to add for climate change, feel free to do so.
1: Okay, sure. The ultimate goal that we need to keep in mind is that, to stabilize the climate at a place where human society can continue to thrive, we need to get net greenhouse gas emissions to zero. Whether or not we do that by 2050, 2060, 2070, there's, there's a lot of debate about that, but the ultimate goal is clear that we need to get to net zero. And so getting to net zero ultimately means dramatically reducing the amount of all fossil fuels that we use in the energy system, whether that's coal, oil, Or natural gas. There is a potential to continue using some of these fuels at scale, but we need some other technologies to go along with them, particularly something called carbon capture utilization and sequestration that can actually capture the greenhouse gas emissions that come when you combust natural gas or coal but prevents them from going into the atmosphere. And so short-term, natural gas can help us Mm. move away from coal, but over the longer term, we're going to need to phase all of these out or develop some really new technologies.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that it's acting as kind of this intermediary, as you describe. Climate change is a very difficult spot to be in because it's one of the problems that is just so existential and so kind of widespread and affects a lot of different things. That it's very interesting as to how... You have to play about it and there's plenty of people who would say the economy is just too reliant on that right now so kind of pulling away really quickly from something like that could be detrimental and i have done a little bit of reading on carbon capture and sequestration and it seems to be at least a promising solution going forward it might not be the you know the golden key but something that's really important to look forward to but in general kind of looking forward we we know that we have to cut down on this at some point, as we said, in the long term to help the effort for climate change. But in the short term, so in the next 10 years, let's say, what do you think the fracking world will look like? You can take into account a whole variety of factors and I'm asking you to forecast something that's very difficult right now. But basically, go in the next 10 years, how do you think fracking will either grow, shrink or change in some way?
1: Well, that is indeed a difficult question. It it makes me think of one of my favorite phrases when it comes to projections, whether it's projecting political outcomes or the future of energy. It's a saying from Larry Sabato, who's a political scientist at the University of Virginia. And he says, he who lives by the crystal ball must be prepared to eat glass. Mm. Um, and so, with that statement in mind i guess i'm I'm loath to make any real predictions about what the next ten years are going to look like, but I can give you a couple of scenarios, both of which I think are plausible so Under one scenario, the u s and the world takes aggressive action to combat climate change that could involve a variety of public policies that the federal government might implement and In that world, what we would see is that we would continue to use oil and natural gas for at least several decades. And we would continue to need to drill new oil and gas wells for at least several decades. But the amount of new drilling and the amount of new production would need to start declining pretty soon. In the US, it would essentially need to start declining today. And globally, there would be some variation in different parts of the world. But over the long term, you would need to see reductions in new drilling, new fracking, and new production of coal, oil, and natural gas. Ten years from now, if we're really aggressive about our climate change goals, then the size of the industry would probably be considerably smaller than it is today. Again, this depends on whether we have new technologies like carbon capture and sequestration that can help us achieve some of these goals. As you say, it's not a silver bullet, but it could be helpful. So that's one scenario that I think is plausible. Another scenario that is also plausible is the US does not take aggressive action on climate change. For the last four years under the Trump administration, the federal government has either rolled back or otherwise weakened a variety of rules and regulations that were put in place under the Obama administration that were intended to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the economy in the US. If we continue on that path, it's entirely possible that the oil and natural gas industry in the US will continue to do well. It depends a lot on oil prices and gas prices. Those are often dictated by what happens in the broader economy and in the global oil market, which is a whole nother conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but under this scenario, you know, in 10 years time, If we don't take serious action on climate change, you could see the industry continuing to thrive in different parts of the U.S. and potentially even grow further if it sees new technological advances.
0: Yeah, I really agree in the sense that if we live by the crystal ball, we will be eating glass if I've learned nothing from this year alone. uh, (laughs) That statement is, is more than true. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd like to extend a really big thank you to Daniel Ramey for coming on and doing an amazing job breaking down the topic of fracking. A bunch of his work and his own podcast is linked in the description below, so please check it out. He's doing some amazing, amazing work. Until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together. And... Shout out Adam for doing all the hard work behind the scenes.